0: Here's a question I've been asked so many times I've lost count. What's more important, finding Doreen or getting justice for her? For a long time, I chose a third road. I just wanted to get her story out there, for people to know her name. It's always struck me as monumentally unfair that a child, not only any child, but one who was my age and my neighbor and my compatriot, could vanish, and that an entire town could continue on like she never existed. But as this podcast continues to reach more and more people, time also marches on. Memories fade, and opportunities to solve this case continue to while away. I keep coming back to that question. And as much as I would love to see the person, or persons, responsible for Doreen's disappearance locked away forever, that's a whole other ball of wax, and it doesn't seem like we're going to have that answer anytime soon. Finding Doreen's body grants her family relief, the ability to mourn, a chance to give her a proper burial with a place to visit and honor her, to bring her flowers. And it gives me the chance to sleep at night, knowing she's not all alone under some frozen ground anymore. But there's more to it than that, because while the call for justice is an intrinsic part of this story, Doreen herself is our puzzle's biggest piece. Finding her body means DNA, being able to test samples long ago submitted by her mother and grandmother against the bones of a lost little girl. It also means, hopefully, determining a cause of death, getting answers on just how Doreen left this world. Did she suffer? Was it quick? Finding Doreen means putting a long-awaited and deserved cap on the issue of whether she was just a runaway. She wasn't. She wasn't forced into child sex work on the Bridgeport streets at 12, stashed away in a hooker's hideaway. She was dead. And finally, the physical location of the body would likely crack this case wide open. We all have theories about where she is. But if you're thinking what I'm thinking, and if we're right, there's a neon red arrow to the person or persons responsible for her murder. Mark Vincent, of course, has always denied that he knows where his daughter is. Recall that in December 2018, when Joe first got in touch with him, Mark was striking in his nonchalance. He didn't want to go round and round on Doreen anymore, he said, but he loved her and would see his daughter in glory. An answer like that might have stumped me, but sometimes Joe is quicker on the uptake. Does that mean you think she's dead, he asked. Mark was immediately indignant. He would have to guess, he told Joe, and why would he guess about something like that?" That answer, if you can call it that, reminds me of something Mark told Connecticut Post reporter Ann DiMatteo in 2012. If you're looking to me, he said, you'll never find Doreen. Asked by DiMatteo to clarify, Mark said, that means she's somewhere else other than here. Assuming Mark is guilty, assumptions being all I have, since I'm not Mark's judge, jury, or executioner, the stark truth of this answer haunts me. Many of you have been following the recent arrest of Paul Flores in the 1996 disappearance of Cal Poly freshman Kristen Smart. That case was pushed to the forefront these days by a podcast called Your Own Backyard. To me, she's somewhere other than here sounds like a taunt like when Paul told the police early on in the investigation into Kristen, if you're so smart, then you tell me where the body is. You'll recall Sergeant Tom Hanley, who headed up the search for Doreen in 1989 and is now the chief of police in Middlebury, Vermont. Back in 2001, when he was still answering questions about this case, he told the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal, you can look at the information in this case and come to your own conclusion. You're missing a little piece. That's her. She's somewhere. She's not dancing on tables. Hanley's 1989 partner, Lieutenant Robert Fliss, was even more pointed when he spoke to Anto Matteo in 2012. It's rare for people to run away and never be heard from again, he said. The majority come home within a few hours or days. Gone without a trace is very hard to do, unless something bad happened. There is no evidence to say she's dead, and I certainly hope she's alive, but it's hard for me to feel she is. Twelve-year-old girls don't go missing forever. This is Sticky Beak, Season 2, Episode 3. I'm Jessica Fritz of Wire. Wow. is proud to be part of the CMG Podcast Network, home to over 40 podcasts, including true crime shows, Crimes and Consequences, Ivy League Murders, and Burn: The Unsolved Murder of David Iman. Please subscribe and leave a review. Be sure to join our private Facebook group and visit our website at CloverCrestMedia.com/stickybeak. According to No Body Guide Tad Tobias, the conviction rate at a murder trial when we have the body is 70%. The conviction rate on no body cases, on the other hand, is a substantially higher 86%. DeBias chalks this up to the fact that prosecutors only bring their strongest cases to trial and leave the thornier, murkier cases behind. This worried me. Back in 2012, Lieutenant DeMeo told DeMateo that police were hoping for a miracle that quote, a shred of evidence as to her whereabouts will be developed you hope that technology can help you in some way, shape, or form. These days, the news is flooded with cases, both body and no body, being solved through advanced technology like DNA and forensic accounting. But DNA won't do the trick here because any potential crime scene was left to languish for at least a year. While the cops still have the bags and bags of Doreen's things that Sharon took from Whirlwind Hill and squirreled away in her house and her brother's, You'll recall that Lieutenant Jim Cifarelli scoffed at the notion of DNA testing a board game. Forensic accounting is equally useless because, as a 12-year-old child in 1988, Doreen didn't have a cell phone or a credit card or anything we could track. One of the things that I saw repeated throughout your stuff was, you know, that because of the increase in DNA technology and because of the ability to trace stuff like uh, credit cards and cell phones, they're able to people are able to do this. Um, with more success my issue in this case is there was no dna because the police treated this case as a runaway case um, from the very beginning and no real investigation was done until a year later she went missing and she was with her father and there are other people that might have known what happened to her she was with her father who moved her to this desolate farmhouse about a week tops before she went missing. And then when her mother showed up to come get her on the designated day, when they would, you know, split custody, he said, well, what do you mean? She's been gone for three days and I'm, I thought she was with you, you know, all signs point to that not being the case, but the police bought the runaway story. um, At least, you know, ostensibly because there was never been any uh, there was no real investigation in the beginning and she was a child, right? So there's no credit card, no cell phone, no nothing like that. So what do you do in a case like uh, that?
1: Child that? You know, you have, you have clues left by the victim, clues left by the suspect, and obviously the victim here is not leaving the clues of, right. of that sort of type.
0: Theoretically, assuming she is gone from this world, the body of little Doreen Vincent could be anywhere. In our search to find her, we're armed with no cadaver dog or drone or ground-penetrating radar, so we're forced to rely on our good old common sense. So let's start with the most obvious place, the scene that I'm sure jumps to mind for many of you, the last physical location in which we can place her before she fell off the face of the earth. Let's start at that old rented farmhouse on Whirlwind Hill Road. Like neighbor Jimmy Piscotti told the Record Journal in 2001, you wonder. It happened on our street. It's always in the back of your mind because it's unsolved you always wonder when you're walking around. Obvious, right? It was when it came to Andrea Bauman, the girl I spoke about in the last episode who featured in the Runaway Train video. Confessing to the 1989 murder of his adopted daughter in 2021, Andrea's father, Dennis, mused to Brenda, his wife, so near, so far, right under your nose. When Brenda asked, what the hell are you talking about? Dennis respond, "Andrea, she's buried in the backyard." No, she's not, said Brenda. We didn't even live here then." Well, Dennis told her, I moved her from the other house as soon as we signed papers on the land. As if this wasn't chilling enough, consider the framed portrait that had hung in the Bauman home for years, of Dennis, Brenda, and their biological daughter, the one from whose dresser Dennis claimed Andrea stole the money to run away. Superimposed into the background. Leaning over Dennis's shoulder is the ghostly faded out figure of Andrea, outfitted with wings and a halo. Dennis lived with that photo in his house and his daughter in the backyard for years. Right under your nose, he said. As for the house on Whirlwind Hill Road, I'm not picking on it just for the sake of it. To start with, I have never gotten a satisfactory explanation for why Mark moved there with his wife and kids. Away from a city and a house, Where either Paul or Sarah, I was never sure which, was actually born within its four walls. Not only that, but all Mark's connections and jobs seemed to be focused in the Bridgeport area, just a stone's throw from his old stomping grounds of Bethel, Redding, and Newtown. Laura West, Mark's landlord, seemed to recall that Mark had been hired to maintain the house when her husband, Jimmy Farnham, had been called back to the city of New Haven for his job. Odd job, she told me were to take the place of Mark's rent. Jimmy recalled it differently. Do you mind if I ask if he was paying you with work or was he paying you with with money? No,
2: they were, they were paying cash.
0: Paying cash. Did he ever make...
2: Well, I it was a low rent. Well, you know, it was like $600 a month for a whole house. Okay. It was my recollection. Even, even then, that was low.
0: And there's always the problem of that pesky concrete just laid in the yard that Mark made a point to steer Doreen's mother and aunts around. When they came to collect her and demanded to see her room. I will never forget the night we first met Donna and her sisters when the subject first came up. Talk about a neon arrow. Jimmy's memory of the concrete wasn't that clear. Do you remember if he did any renovations to the house or any improvements to the house while you were renting to him? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because the day that the mother, Doreen's mother, and her aunt came to pick her up, um, they said he was constructing a concrete patio or some sort of concrete um, in the front of the house.
3: Huh. Weird.
2: Like, you know, like, like pouring concrete.
0: Pouring concrete, and he had um, he had a, like it was roped off, and they couldn't get around it, so they had to go through the side door
2: the main, the people in that house use the side door more than the front door is <coughs> not really used. The side door is, the kitchen is the main door for people coming in and out, so.
0: So the front, the side door, is that the door facing the road when you drive past the house?
2: Uh, no, there's, there's, this, there's a door that faces the road is the front door. Okay. Into a, like a old formal hallway. And then there's a side door with a porch uh, that I built on the side. Um
3: Face house on the right side. Okay. And you know, we we had, uh, when I lived there, I was
2: trying to create a passive solar porch. So the the whole porch is you might notice is all glass. And then we had we had actually poured the, the porch had been just a wooden porch, and we created a, a stone porch, filled it with rocks, put in piping, and and put concrete over it. Um, that was well before he was there, so I don't. I don't don't remember seeing any concrete work that he ever did.
0: Even if Doreen or her things aren't buried in the concrete, the fact that Mark was laying it three days after his daughter supposedly went missing speaks volumes about his priorities. We've heard how Mark is jealously overprotective, almost obsessed with Doreen, had been right on her tail on the one other occasion when she's run away. But he chose that day to make improvements on a house he didn't even own The concrete is maddening for another reason, the apparent lack of any urgency on the part of either the PD or the current homeowners to settle once and for all the question of whether it's just a walkway or a patio's foundation or a little girl's grave. When Joe and I met with Chief Bright, Lieutenant Demayo, and then Sergeant Jim Cifarelli back in March 2019, Demayo swore up and down that he'd met with the current owners. But when it came time to remember their names, words failed him. I knew the name, so I told him. He shook his head vehemently. No, it's not, he retorted. But he was wrong. Later that March, when Aunt Debbie and I tried to approach the homeowners, the husband drove us off the property with screams and threats to call his lawyers and the police. Later, the wife wrote to Doreen's Aunt Debbie to tell her she was just upset that the rural paradise she discovered with her husband might hold a dark secret. And let me say, I totally get it. But that summer, when Sarah Demio and I honored the 31st anniversary of Doreen's disappearance at Gouvea Vineyards across the street from the house, we were rewarded with a flurry of Wallingford police cars sent to watch us. So let's just say that apart from me hitting a Saturday barn sale in a COVID mask, the house on Whirlwind Hill Road is, for now at least, off limits. Then again, the house has always been that way. One of the very first things I did when the Doreen bug bit me was to plug the property into Zillow, Google Earth, Realtor.com. And a funny thing happened. No sale history popped up, and there were no photos for me to pore over. So I called a woman in the know about Wallingford Real Estate. I'll call her Phyllis. She couldn't offer much about the house, because as long as it's existed, it's always past hands in private sales. And despite living a very active, prominent life in Wallingford, Phyllis had never heard of Doreen Vincent either. Sorry I couldn't be of more help, she said, and we hung up. Not an hour later, Phyllis called me back. She'd gotten curious, she told me, and called an acquaintance who lived up on Whirlwind since the 1960s. That person, whom I'll call Henry, had a lot to say. Not only did he remember Doreen, he told Phyllis, but he had always been angry that her case had gotten short shrift. He'd been dumbstruck at the lack of police activity at the house, he said, especially the fact that they never dredged any of the property's multiple ponds. Phyllis was happy to gossip with me about why this probably was. The Wallingford Police Department, she told me, was always notoriously understaffed, with Mayor Dickinson, who's now been in office since 1983, constantly refusing its request for more officers and more resources. A simple Google search quickly proved that, despite always touting how safe Wallingford was, Dickinson seemed to have weird ways of utilizing the police force. In fact, just over a year ago, in February 2020, the mayor finally allowed town officials to receive their meeting agendas by email instead of the antiquated police courier system that he had always required. Chief William Wright expressed relief to the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal, noting that although there was no cost involved in requiring an officer to hand-deliver paper agendas to each and every town official, it tied up resources by taking officers away from other duties. And just the other night, as I was writing this episode, this little gem popped up in the Wallingford, Connecticut community Facebook forum. So be careful if you're on North Plains Industrial Road. There is a cop hiding in someone's yard. Hiding in the bushes, standing on a bucket, and calling the other cops down the road. Yes, I rolled through a stop sign and got snagged. My question is, can they just hide behind the bushes and stand on a bucket and catch people? Really, Wallingford PD? All joking aside, things weren't always this way with the Wallingford PD, Phyllis told me. When Joe Bevan was the chief, back when Doreen was missing, he and the mayor were cozy. Bevan didn't chafe so much under the tight control Dickinson maintained over all Wallingford departments. But then again, Bevan took a lackadaisical approach, Phyllis told me. Once, when she was a child and her family's house was robbed, Bevan refused to do any investigation and told Phyllis's mother it was an inside job. Not only that, but he scoffed at what was taken. Little personal things. Nevertheless, things dear to the family. Okay, we can gossip more about the Wallingford PD later. Because one other detail Henry gave Phyllis scratches at the back of my mind. Henry certainly remembered Doreen, he said, but hadn't thought she lived in the house with Mark and Sharon. Instead, he said, he thought that she only came to visit on weekends. As I recall that detail now, more than two years after my conversation with Phyllis, my hackles go up. Mark and Sharon always said Doreen went missing on June 15th, a Wednesday three days before Donna came to collect her on that Saturday, the 18th. But Doreen was barely in Wallingford at all. She arrived on June 4th and was gone at the latest on June 15th. The belief that she was a weekend visitor could be a run-of-the-mill mix-up, some simple confusion on Henry's part, especially over 30 years later. But remember that awful fight that neighbor Jimmy Piscotti, another neighbor, heard coming from the Vincents as he did yard work? Piscotti staunchly insisted that was the weekend, because that's when he did his yard. It's little details like this that make me believe that Doreen was dead and gone much earlier than June 15th. So where was I? Ah yes, talking about the concrete, the biggest red herring in the universe if it all boils down to nothing in the end. There is also the matter of the property septic system, which I spoke about at length in a season one episode. The first time I heard about the septic tank was from landowner Jimmy Farnham.
2: The mother hired a private investigator that <clears> came <throat> out and pumped out our septic
0: tank and the police were all over our property. They
2: found a, a, a freshly dug hole in the woods. They dug it up thinking it might be a grave. It was okay. really bizarre. Um, yeah, I mean, they paid to
0: have our septic tank pumped out because they thought that it might have been there, the body. The scant notes private investigator Richard Novia took on Jimmy and his wife Laura in his first and only interview with them note the septic as well. Those read, simply, Jim Farnham and Laura West were aware of septic problems at the house. Mark was doing a lot of repairs. Broken windows, bullet holes. Seemed like nice people. When I spoke to Laura in 2019, she recalled when the septic was cleaned out. She was scared, she said. It made her uneasy to think a little girl's body might have been stashed there. What exactly Mark had been doing with the septic system is unclear. Apparently, he told Novia he cleans it out himself with a helper. But Novia's report indicates that's not true, because in the same breath, Novia records that Heather Parker has no brother, Mike, on Knollwood Drive. Mr. Vincent, Novia wrote, is caught lying repeatedly. In the end, it was private investigator Kingsley, hired by Doreen's great-uncle Mike, who paid out of his own pocket to clean out the septic. She wasn't there so we can erase that horrible image from our minds. But I'm not done with Warwell and Till Road, not yet, because while the police tell me that cadaver dogs were quote all over that property with Farnham and West consent in July of 1989, it's not clear if they mean the house or the estate, the rambling, sprawling estate. Here again is Jimmy Farnham. How did you find me? Oh, we're researchers, so we, you know, we pulled the deeds on the property, and it goes back. It looked like your your father was a pretty uh, a pretty well respected prominent guy, and he bought it. Did he buy it from the original owner? Uh,
2: well, he bought it. I, yeah, I think so. He bought it in nineteen fifty six from Ray Stevens, okay. who was a farmer next door. My father started bought his farm in nineteen forty, and then he he added this to his farm down the street. Okay. And then he, then he sold it to us for a very very low price and As, when I was just. Uh, about 30 and having a kid
0: okay like I said we did a little bit of research on him and uh-huh. you know I was able to track down I is it was it the property split across the street and the remaining half went to your sister well it, across
2: the street it was, it was he sold the development rights to the
0: state so we can't develop it okay uh, the land around there the house was separate from that but yeah so he sold the house the land across the street he sold to George Cook who then sold it to the Gavea the Vineyard and my sister still lives there on the property She lives, uh, she has a bed breakfast. Right. She might. I don't know if you talked to her, but she might not remember something about this, because I think she dealt with a guy going in to dig up the forest, dig up the
2: hole, but she might have.
0: So maybe there were dogs, but were they brought to the 140 acres across the way that would become Gouveia Vineyards in 1999? And what about the property owned by Jimmy's sister and brother-in-law, Nancy and Robert Charles, tucked away behind the house the Vincents were renting? That's where the couple created their high meadow bed and breakfast. Recall that in April 1989, Robert called the police to check out what he thought was a freshly dug grave on his land. Out walking the property with two of his friends, Robert had found a three-by-six-foot section of unearthed ground, five inches deeper than the surrounding soil and covered by a blanket of leaves, about a tenth of a mile from the Charles' house, and about 10 to 12 feet into the woods. When the cops arrived, Robert told them that there had been Yale Forestry School students out digging on the property, but not within the last year. Jimmy Farnham had also mentioned it when I spoke to him. One of Robert's friends, a graduate of the forestry school, told the cops that he'd surveyed the site in a helicopter right around the time Doreen went missing, and Mark had been there, acting nervous and bizarre. The Wallingford Fire Department was called because it was getting late and shined a spotlight onto the area which boasted a small clump of maggots. But after digging down four to five feet with a shovel, the police found nothing. Even though a promising lead turned up nothing, it's the details on the Charles property that piqued my interest. Police noted the land was eighty two acres in total, including a section of woods and a chunk Robert and Nancy rented to a neighbor, John Craniac, for farming. To this day I've seen no proof that every inch of the Whirlwind Hill property in its entirety including the Gouvet Vineyard, Charles, and Craniac properties, were ever combed for Doreen. And without that, I can't rule Whirlwind Hill out. Just recently, I looked up Robert Charles to give him a call, to ask him about that strange dark day when he thought a little girl might be buried on his land. But he passed away in October 2020. Just one more potential witness lost to the passage of time. So let's turn, reluctantly, from that beautiful blue farmhouse on the hill. And let's remember all the driving Mark did on the night Doreen went missing, and in the days afterwards. According to Sharon Benson's July 8, 1989 statement, she got home from a five-hour trip to church the night of June 15, 1988, at about 11.30 p.m. to find Mark brooding over a fresh cup of coffee. He was agitated, Sharon said, and asked why she had been gone so long. Doreen had run away, Mark told her, and he had to go out and find her. He was headed, Mark said, to Donna's in Waterbury, and he took off in his 1977 Chevy pickup. Mark never made it to Donna's, but that didn't keep him from staying out until 3 a.m. When he got home, Sharon was awake, but the two didn't speak. Less than four hours later, at 7 a.m. on June 16, 1988, Mark woke Sharon up to tell her to take the children, Sarah and Paul, and get out of the house in case something happened. Before she left, Mark warned his wife not to tell Donna in case she called that Doreen was missing. Sharon took the kids and left the house, not returning until the afternoon. It remains unclear where or how Mark spent all those hours or what time he got home that day. But I do have Mark's phone records from those early days. And someone called the Whirlwind Hill House on the evening of the 16th, at 6:09 p.m for Mark's mother Lori's in Bethel. I know because the phone call, which lasted only two minutes, was placed at 1316 collect. This phone record is a treasure trove that I'm just digging into, but I keep coming back to this call, which is the only one on the 16th, and the second call from the house while the Vincents were there, coming after Sharon's call the night before. For prayer. Was Lori calling her son collect, or is that Mark calling his own house? And either way, why? Because as far as I can tell, Mark and Sharon didn't have money for collect calls back in those days. The call only lasted two minutes and cost a dollar and one cent, which translates to $2.24 today. For some of you listening, that might not seem like a lot, but back in the day, at least to me, collect calls were a luxury and you didn't make them unless they were absolutely necessary. Either way, we also know Donna called the Wallingford house that night from her apartment in Waterbury at about 9 p.m. Sharon told Donna that Doreen was out, and after that, Mark removed the phone from the wall, saying he didn't want Donna calling them anymore. It remained that way, disconnected and useless, until Donna arrived on June 18th, discovered Doreen missing, and made Mark call the police. Here's another weird thing. I don't see that call on Mark's phone bill. In fact, there was only one call placed from when that day, at 7.10 p.m., and it was placed to Bridgeport, the city from which he and Sharon had just moved the kids. The next day, June 19, 1988, was Father's Day. Donna called Mark in the evening, desperate for any news. Mark told her he'd spent the day looking for Doreen in Bridgeport. But Donna knew that wasn't true because she'd spoken to Mark's mother, Lori, in Bethel, and Georgia Lewis, an old family friend, in Redding. Lori already knew when Mark pulled into the driveway that Doreen was missing because Donna had told her. She tested her son as he worked with her, shirtless, in her prized garden, watching every muscle to see if he flinched. He never did, not even when Lori offered Mark Doreen's favorite, snow peas, to take home. Explaining that away later, Mark would swear Doreen and Lori had never been close. This ignored the innumerable hours Doreen had spent with her grandmother, captured on countless rolls of film. It also fails to explain why a father in distress wouldn't have confided to his mother, or why he was spending valuable hours picking veggies and shooting the shit. As for Georgia, Mark never mentioned Doreen to her either, though it's unclear if Georgia had heard the news from Donna before he arrived. Later, Georgia would chalk Mark's reticence up to embarrassment. I took it that he was embarrassed, she said, thinking she would come back home. For a moment, let's talk about these little patches of land lorded over by Lori, Georgia, and June, three women that love Mark despite their better angels. Recently, I was able to take a trip by all three homes, noting my earlier mistake when I thought Lori lived a stone's throw from the other two. Lori is gone, of course, and even though the Vincent family still owns and rents out the house, her beloved flower and vegetable gardens have gone to seed. Georgia, who lived about five miles away, is gone now, too. I was only able to get the quickest glimpse at her old stomping grounds, pulling up that infamous long driveway her friend Pierre told me about and muttering to myself, Don't put the coffee on. I'm not staying. There was the little porch that either Mark or his brother Jay built where Georgia warded off the KKK with her gun. The dining room where she sat for her tête-à-tête with Mark on the day she told Pierre to go to the bedroom and watch TV was, of course, off-limits. June's house sits kitty-corner to Georgia's. I cruised past as nonchalantly as I could, holding my breath and catching a glimpse of the pond where Mark took Carol and Debbie and Donna to swim. I couldn't see the changing rooms where he kept Carol back, and in a way, I'm glad for that. June still lives there, but I resisted the urge to pull in and ring the bell. When I called her about a year ago, she chuckled. I'd love to help you, honey, she told me, but my memory is shot. I don't remember anything anymore. I don't bring up Mark's mother or her friends because I believe that Doreen is buried on their property. It's easy to wonder if Lori's vegetable garden might be the perfect spot because no one would ever suspect it but I can't help picture Mrs. Vincent beating her son about the head if he even entertained the thought. I guess my point is that the cops didn't entertain that thought either because they never brought any dogs out to that corner of the universe, despite Mark's Father's Day travel. In July 1989, the police eventually did get a search warrant for Lori's house, along with Whirlwind, Sharon's parents in Danbury, Sharon's brothers in Newtown, and Mark's truck but it was to look for personal articles of Doreen's that might provide a clue to her disappearance. Searching Mark's childhood home, where Mark had been living with Lori, Lieutenant William Buck hedged his bets, being careful to watch what came out of his mouth. We don't want to impugn anyone's character, he said. We won't even say if we have a suspect. Buck also admitted, I hope sheepishly, that it was unusual in a missing persons case to get a search warrant for the parents' homes. So let's move for a moment from the most obvious of hiding places, Whirlwind Hill Road, and ones that are a little more off the beaten path, a loved one's backyard in Bethel or Redding. Let's take a trip to Huntington State Park. When I first met Donna and her family in January 2019, I didn't know anything about Huntington. I'm not what you would call an outdoorsy person, and the park was far from where I had grown up in Meriden. 43 miles to be exact. If you're coming from Wallingford, Meriden's neighboring town, it's 45 miles. Either way, it's about an hour's drive. But I learned about Huntington that night when Doreen's mom and aunts told me a story that seemed like an old urban legend. In the summer or fall of 1988, the women told me, someone had seen Mark, or at least someone who looked like Mark, running into the park carrying what looked like a body. They didn't know the witness's name, Donna and her sisters told me and they didn't remember where they'd heard about him. The story hit me like the news of Mark burning Doreen's diary in the days before she went missing, or laying concrete when he should have been looking for her. I couldn't get this faceless man out of my mind. How, I wondered, could so many neon arrows be missed? So I decided to do some digging. I first found the witness, whose name is Paul O'Connell, pop up in Jason Barry's 2001 Record Journal article in an interview with Tom Hanley. In the late summer and early fall of 1988, Hanley reported, O'Connell was an officer for the Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection, doing patrols when he came across a man in the park, removing something from the back of his pickup truck. He had his two arms out like he was carrying a kit or something. Anything, a carpet, Hanley said. The person ran off into the woods. He actually called in the plate of the truck, but didn't call it into the state police. He called it into his office. Hanley's explanation for why O'Connell didn't follow Mark into the woods was less than satisfactory. He didn't have any idea where the guy went. It was dark. I don't even think he had a radio. But for some reason, Hanley noted, O'Connell was fixated on the truck. O'Connell had described the vehicle in detail, including the dent marks, the toe clasp, a homemade toolbox attached to the back of the pickup bed. He also noted the color, a brown or yellow gold. Hanley told Barry he couldn't remember how the Wallingford PD had found out about O'Connell's encounter, which they only discovered in 1989. But I know, because it was Kingsley who found him. Private investigator Kingsley, the fourth hired by Donna's family, took a trip to Huntington on a wing and a prayer and asked the officers he found there if they had seen anything suspicious, anything at all. And it was then that O'Connell, whom the Wallingford Police Department have consistently asked not to comment, remembered his strange encounter a year earlier with the man in the Chevy pickup. Mark denied he'd been in the woods that night, even after the WPD brought O'Connell and Kingsley to the search of Lori's house, and executed a second search warrant on that truck in July 1989. It was a perfect match to the truck O'Connell had seen in the woods, but still Mark presented a bold face. I can prove to you I wasn't there that night, he told Anne DiMatteo of the Connecticut Post Chronicle in 2012. Years later, in 2019, Mark would taunt my husband Joe over text, daring Joe to tell him what he'd been carrying that night, a body, Mark asked, or a picnic basket. Setting aside the fact that it's impossible to prove a negative, like trying to show Santa Claus doesn't exist, Huntington State Park makes a lot of sense. The park covers over a thousand acres and runs through Bethel, where Mark grew up, Redding, where Georgia and June lived, and Newtown, the home of Sharon's brother, Richard Rockwell. In fact, it lines up right against Lori's house and has been repeatedly characterized for me as Mark's childhood playground. And what a playground. It's where he used to run as a kid, where he drank and partied as a teenager and where he brought Donna, Debbie, and Carol to fish. It's also where his family held the memorial service for his father, George, where they spread his ashes in one of the ponds. That day, Mark walked away to explore the forest alone. He knew that place like the back of his hand and he knew when it was quiet, unoccupied, and dark. The park was exactly the kind of place I wanted to speak to the nobody guy about. Here's Tad DeBias talking about what might have happened in this case. It's an eerie conversation that gets even eerier when we know what we know about the park. The reason for that is in a no body case,
1: you generally need time and seclusion to dispose of the body. I always give the example if a burglar breaks into a house and the homeowner is there and the burglar has a gun, he shoots and kills the homeowner he's not going to stick around and get rid of the body, right? right. That's ridiculous. He's going right. to get the hell out of there. But with the parent and the child in particular, it is a lot easier to dispose of a body because it may just be the two of them. No one thinks anything of, you know, someone being mm. alone in a house who's related to a child. A child is easier to get rid of because they are smaller. Mm-hmm. It's easier to cut up. It's easier to carry or tote out of a house. Those types of things. I also suspect, as with most no body cases when the body is disposed of it's in a location well-known to the suspect because when you're disposing of a body, it's not very easy, and you want to make sure you're not going to get caught when you're doing it. Right. And so you're going to go to some place very familiar to you.
0: Huntington seems like an easy answer, but it's also huge. I needed to get a better sense of the spot where Mark was seen. It took a while, but I finally managed to track down Paul O'Connell. He was, I told him, my white whale. He and I had a long conversation back in June 2019, which I was holding on to for the right episode. We met for a drink, or maybe two, at his favorite watering hole in Glastonbury, where he spends a lot of time now that he's retired, and where he seemed to be a favorite among other regulars. That recording, of course, got eaten, so I worked up the stones to call him again, to confirm what he told me two years ago. And to see if I could get any additional detail. In the meantime, he'd spoken to another player in this story. It sounds like um you've you've talked to the cops recently because you knew it was kind of reopened.
4: Yes, yeah, I okay. have. I met the uh, I met a couple of guys that are involved in the case, and they were probably uh, they're probably in junior high school when this was done.
0: Have they gotten in touch with you over the past few years, or has this been kind of is this new? Like we're bringing it back to your doorstep.
4: Since uh, since it's been reopened, I've I've had contact with the police department, and I'll leave it at that right now. Yep.
0: Okay. Yeah, and me, because I wasn't sure if before that anybody had been knocking on your door, you know.
4: They just found me not too recently. They said they had a hard time finding me too.
0: I told you you're the white whale.
4: Well, they do. I guess there's more than one <laughs> Paul O'Connell out there.
0: I asked O'Connell about the recent work put in by the WPD. I went to FOIA and I had my last hearing about a year ago in February and I lost that. So I don't get the um, file, but it sounds like they have, um, you know, they're, they're digging into it. So that makes me happy.
4: Yeah, it is. I guess, they, you know, they're actively working. I, you know, it, I think it's a long shot at best. Yeah. But um, I personally think that she's in Huntington State Park.
0: O'Connell has a history with Huntington. He might not know it as well as Mark does, but he knows it pretty well.
4: You wouldn't generally find anything in the forest that was, you know, Huntington is such a big place. It's like 880 acres. It is gigantic.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: It's like the size of a town. Right. It's like a mile and a half square or something.
0: Is Old Dodgington um, perpendicular to where Sunset um, Hill Road is? How close is that? Yeah,
4: yeah. Right now, it's, uh, I was, actually, my wife wanted to go for a ride, so I went out there this past weekend and. You can only go down halfway down Old Dodging Town Road now. They don't maintain it in the winter. It's kind of rough. Okay. As Once you go down a couple hundred yards, there's a parking lot on the right, but there's a gate in front of you where you could normally go down in the in drier weather in the non-winter.
0: And that used to be fairly open when you saw him there or someone there?
4: There never was a gate there at, that blocked that road at, at the time. It was just a straight shot all the way through. No parking lots.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. As so I was talking to some members of Mark's family, I know the police took them down there and they said it was definitely, you know, developed, paved over. There's the gate and stuff like that. Um, so it, I would assume it would be more overgrown now, too. Right. Not a whole
4: lot because there's a lot, there's a you know, there's a canopy of trees there. So there's not a lot growing underneath the canopy of
0: trees. It's, it's 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 not a whole lot different than when it was years ago. Like any good lawyer, I asked O'Connell to bring himself back to 1988. And to try to remember his report on that night, which I've never been able to track down. And I know you can't share this with me what it says in the report because you don't have it. But did they show you the report in their latest talks with you? No,
4: I haven't. I haven't seen anything in, in, in writing in regards to this case in years. Okay. I never really. I don't think I really saw anything in writing in regard to it. It was all verbal communication with uh, with Fliss and Hanley.
0: Yeah, didn't you tell me they took there was a typewriter they took to your station? And yeah, the cutting
4: out. edge technology at the time <laughs> was uh they had a word processor oh, to wow, take wow. my to take my statement. I mean, when I was taking statements in law enforcement even after that because I I switched jobs after that, I was doing stuff by hand, you know, handwritten reports.
0: Right.
4: So that was like cutting edge technology at the time.
0: Yeah, cuz I tried to track your statement down with um, you know, the the parks and recs department and I don't even know if that's where I would go, but obviously the police aren't giving it to me and And they said with the Parks Department that stuff like that has been destroyed, you know, since.
4: Those records probably were because they are, I forget what the limitation is on holding those reports, but it's like after a certain amount of years, they they do destroy them.
0: Now, you made a report. They came to you, right, after you had seen Mark. There was a period of time that.
4: Yeah, it might have been a year distant from the time I saw Mark till the time that they came to
0: visit me. But you were, it was pretty fresh in your mind as soon as they said it? Yeah. So take it as a given that the actual date of the night O'Connell saw Mark, or someone who looked like Mark, will never be pinned down. It was a 1988 memory he recalled for Kingsley, Hanley, and Fliss over a year later. So I tried to pin him down a bit more. My concern with that take, the only thing that's been going through my head is, um, I believe you saw it, and I don't know the exact date, but I believe it was in the late summer, early fall, and she disappeared in mid-June. So it, it, it had to
4: be after July 1st, because that's my first day of work for that area that when I went to work for the state at that capacity.
0: Yeah. And that's what I I remember. You had had an extremely good memory. And that's what I wanted to run down with you was your um your history with the department.
4: Yeah. My oh, uh, on July 1st of 1988 was my first day as a park and forest supervisor. One. We commonly called ourselves park managers, you know, so I was commonly called the park manager one. And the rocker on our uniform said manager on it. Okay. So we wore, for that job at the time, and they don't do it anymore, you had to go to the police academy, the protective services uh, run by the state police, and or the municipal academy, which was running out of the same building. And there were different degrees of park managers. It was a park manager one, park manager two, and a park manager three. I was a one, which is the lowest, has the smallest area of responsibility. A park manager three would be like a guy who ran Hammond Asset.
0: Okay, okay. And are there people no. under you in that position?
4: People, I'm sorry, people working for me? Yeah. Yeah, maintainers would be the guys that would work for me in that position. Okay. You know, The, the guys who do the physical cleanup and labor in the in the state parks.
0: So what kind of work did you do have to do in the police academy to get to that spot?
4: Uh, that, back then it was, um, I think it was 18 weeks, if I'm not mistaken. It went from like uh, November to February. So I was in the police academy from November 1st of 88 till like February, mid-February of 89. So I when I saw what I saw at Huntington that day, I had not been trained as a, as a police officer yet.
0: Oh, I see. So they gave you put the position before you had the training.
4: Yeah, what you have to do is you get the position, and you have to wait for a position to open up at the police academy. Okay. You know, you just don't. Although you know, it would be ideal if you went for for a lot of cops. Their first day of work is at the police academy. For me, it was not the case. I had other responsibilities other than law enforcement.
0: What were those responsibilities?
4: Making sure that the uh, the park was maintained by the maintainers. You know, checking their work and giving them direction, supervising their work.
0: Okay. What does that mean, like cleaned up and people are where they're supposed to be?
4: Yeah, if you're, if you've got an inland park, you know, in the fall, you're chasing leaves around and making sure, you know, stuff like that is cleaned up. You know, in the wintertime, they would be building picnic tables inside a barn, you know, a, a heated environment. Uh, they would take care of litter control, anything, you know, pick up the garbage that had to be done. Um, you know, any 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 kind of maintenance duties.
0: Okay. So it sounds yeah, like.
4: Plowing, plowing snow in the wintertime. One of the parks that I had had a lot of snow. Uh, ice skating. So actually had a machine for clearing the ice from the, from the, uh, the pond.
0: Okay. So you probably wouldn't, you wouldn't have had a gun by that point then, right? As of that time. Okay. But a radio, right?
4: A radio equipped truck. Yep. Okay. And that's, and that's where I was in the day that I saw Mark was the, uh, the truck that I was issued actually my first day of work, July 1st.
0: Was it, um, when you saw him, was it nighttime?
4: It was very close to, uh, nighttime. It was about sunset because I was in the process of closing the gates at, uh, Putnam Memorial State Park, where I lived, okay, and then Huntington State Park, which was just a couple, just a little bit down the road.
0: Okay, so that's not even the same park then, or Putnam is part of Huntington?
4: Putnam Putnam is part of the same unit as Huntington, or Huntington is part of the same unit as Putnam. So I, in addition to Putnam and Huntington, I had other other outlying areas, but those are my two main concerns when I was a, a park and forest manager.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, and it, it sounded like you were you were closing the gate, right? You were getting people yeah, out of and it. What,
4: there was no gate on Old Dodging Town Road. It was just an area of concern because of dumping and, you know, kids hanging around and, uh, you know, stuff like that. So that I always made it a point to go there, you know, kind of proactively just mm-hmm. to, you know, fly the flag, so to speak.
0: Yeah yeah so, but you don't remember exactly when it happened, right? You just know it was I just
4: remember up. the 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 foliage on the trees was very full at the time and it was very hot. it was in the summertime
0: so it was you're talking green foliage,
4: yeah, like the leaves the leaves on the maple trees were big. it was like you know it was you know it was it had to be either July or August my guess
0: okay, okay
4: it, my guess is what it was probably before september okay or or early in September,
0: okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think of when the leaves start to turn around here. It's probably like late September, early October, right?
4: Well, the weak ones will start showing in like even late August, but by September, some of them really start to show. So my guess is it was like, you know, if I had to pin down a month, I would say August, but I I have no idea, knowing you know, what month it was.
0: So let's hear from the horse's mouth what O'Connell saw. Now I'm trying to think in the article it said he had you reported to the newspaper that he had his arms out like he was carrying something in front of him
4: he had his arms in front of him as though he was cradling an object i could not tell what the object was i thought it was trash because it's an area where people have commonly dumped trash in the past
0: right right and then he took off running correct yeah okay did you say something to him
4: i'm sure i did i said something like hey stop or you know yeah you know some kind of exclamation but i have no idea exactly what happened
0: And so when he bolted, did you follow him at all, or did you stay by his truck?
4: I I followed him shortly, but I was uh, in the process of closing gates and stuff, so it was, you know, an armload of garbage was not, to me, didn't seem like a big concern, so at least because that's what I thought it was. Right. So then I went up to, there's a gate up on uh, Sunset Hill, which is the main gate to Huntington State Park, and that was the gate that was uh, the one I was in the process of closing. Okay. There's now, just now on Old Dodgingtown Road, there's a parking lot with a gate that was not there at the time.
0: This is obviously hard to listen to, as helpful as O'Connell's memories are in keeping the spotlight trained on Mark. It's hard to understand how Mark could slip out of this so easily when it became obvious who the truck belonged to. One of the things that has always bothered me is that I think, from your description, as, as was reported in the newspaper, Mark's truck was pretty uh, unique. The color, and I think there was a dent in it, and there was a certain toolbox and stuff, but when it also said that when you guys showed up to his house for the vehicle search, that he denied that that was his truck.
4: I didn't really have a lot of interaction with Mark. I just saw him at the scene and didn't really talk or communicate with him. Okay. I was kind of like a tag along, so I was there to observe, really. Yep. Um, So... Um I do know I I I'm I'm assuming that the information they got from me was enough to get the search warrant on his truck and get that seized and I believe they must have had other information in order to uh, get the search warrant at his uh childhood home his mother's house
0: So you don't know but you don't think they would have had a license plate number. You don't think that's something you would have taken down? At
4: the time I don't think I would have because um I didn't have police powers.
0: Okay but there was enough that they said to you when they came around in 89 that you remembered that truck itself like it stuck out yeah, in your head yeah
4: i'm not going to get into detail but there was a distinguishing there was distinguishing characteristics about the truck
0: right yeah i read something about like a, a uh, his own made toolbox in the back or something like that so um okay yeah cuz that always bothered me that you know he has always held out that that was not his truck that was seen in huntington and he was never around huntington but You know, I always thought to myself, well, if, you know, Paul O'Connell had a record of something that was written down, what the truck looked like, how would he be able to deny it? But I guess without a license plate number, you wouldn't be able to make the connection necessarily. No, no, I don't think there's any, there's
4: no digital or no, uh, you know, no, I don't think there's any electronic connection anywhere.
0: Okay. Did they ask you when you were at his house, did they say, hey, Paul, is that the truck?
4: I don't remember them specifically saying that, but uh, I recognized it as a vehicle that I had seen uh, the day that uh, I encountered him or or a person that, you know, had his vehicle anyway.
0: Did you recognize him or did they ask you to recognize him or identify him? No,
4: I did not. I did not get a good look at at the person that I saw running from his vehicle that day. Okay. So I could could not make an identification and say, you know, that was him or that was not him.
0: Another hard part to reconcile is why O'Connell never chased the man in the park. It's so infuriating when you can picture another scenario in your head, a scenario in which O'Connell confronted the man right then, right there. You, When you didn't chase him, you're just thinking that's garbage. He's just got an armload of garbage, right?
4: Yeah, pretty much.
0: Did people usually run if they had garbage like that? Is that something that generally happens?
4: Uh, people d- who are doing something wrong don't generally run because they don't want to get caught.
0: Yeah. Well, I wasn't sure what the the penalty is for something like that just cuz i don't dump garbage i could
4: it could have been it could have been anything from a verbal warning like take that stuff home and get rid of it or it could have been a, you know a, a, a an infraction at the time i had not been through the uh, the police academy so I, I did not have um you know full police powers at the time
0: okay okay yeah and nothing to protect yourself if you were to go into the woods right so
4: right i was yeah i was i was unarmed
0: um and i know you or at least it said in the newspaper that you took down the truck information that was later linked to the truck that was found at his mom's house right
4: i don't know if i took any information down regarding the plate and i don't know if i called it in because i really i didn't really have the power to use the radios you had to be a a sworn officer at the time i think okay um i think you could use the radio for communications with the you know for other purposes but i don't think i was really uh i was not allowed to run license plates and registrations and and uh, information on people
0: but I couldn't stop thinking about Hanley's quotation in the 2001 Jason Barry article, so I pushed more. And at the time, again, it just would have been a garbage thing, so you wouldn't have thought about it. What made you, um, what made you think later that it might have been uh, a kid? Because in the newspaper article, it says "kid" or "carpet."
4: Yeah, I never said "kid" to anyone. Okay. That was, that might have been. I don't know where that came from. It might even be in my statement because I, I don't, I don't have a copy of my statement, and I don't remember. But, you know, it is a written statement from the day that Schlissel and Hanley found me at the Stone Barn.
0: It's important to remember that O'Connell's encounter with the man in the park occurred at least two weeks after Doreen went missing, if we accept his start date at Huntington as July 1st, 1988. I asked Tad Tobias why Mark might be in the park all those days later. Most of the people who are returning to the scene of the crime are either returning, one, because there's some type of fetish or something
1: associated with it. And that's really more along the kind of serial killer spectrum. Okay. Or it's people who are getting worried that the body is going to be discovered. Okay. Um, and they have a concern about going to see what's going on. You know, is there a work crew over there or now they're building condos over there. Right. So I know there's going to be a backhoe digging up. And they start to have that fear of the body found that way.
0: The idea of Mark double-checking his work made sense to me. If he was, in fact, guilty of killing Doreen and hiding her body in Huntington, that might explain why he turned up in Bethel and Redding to spend Father's Day weekend with his mother in Georgia. The park is right there. Maybe he was checking on his handiwork. Now here he is, in July or August, spotted in the park. It bothered me that he was bringing something else out. I mean, I don't think it would be the body at that point, right? It would probably be something else like you said finishing off the job or putting finishing touches on it or
1: clothes He could be removing the clothes because that's
0: an identifying mark okay he, you know if you're smart what you do is maybe bury the body
1: one place and get rid of the clothes somewhere else so there's never that it, you know connection and then if the body is decomposed enough it's more difficult to um identify if it doesn't have any clothes
0: Right. But this was like two or three months later and he was headed into the park. Like he wasn't seen coming back from doing something. He was seen arriving, getting out of his truck and then bringing something into the park. And one of the things that's always been missing is this comforter Uh, when her parent or when her mother discovered that she was missing. The bed had been stripped and this prized comforter was gone. And so in my mind, I sort of see, you know arms outstretched, maybe a, a comforter with something in it, a shovel. I mean, is that something that would be typical, bringing something back to, I know sometimes killers place their victims with, um, you know, something special to them or something that they they would maybe wrap them in or be comforting to them. Is that is that on point?
1: That's more what you see in the serial killer world.
0: Okay. Um, you know, typically, I don't think you see in a Possibly with a child domestic murder, I, I I might agree that's possible. I do think <clears> it's a little unlikely
1: that two or three months later you see them bringing something back to the scene. Okay. Um, because that's very, if you're caught, that's very inculpatory for sure. Um, but you know, th- there's always one off. You can't. Right. You can't can't say one way or the other. There's there's as many as many times as you see. Uh, as often as
0: you see, you know, it's, you you play the odds of the investigation, but that doesn't mean that a one time or a two time can't happen. That that certainly seems possible. Okay, are there cases where, you know, is it possible that he was bringing a, again? It would be two or three months later, her decomposing body back to be buried somewhere, like maybe moving it. Well moving it
1: that's not uncommon, yes, it is uncommon, but it's not unheard of for a killer to move a body for a variety of reasons, such as hey, the place I buried it is not such a good place anymore because they're putting up apartments right um that does that does happen, and that wouldn't necessarily shock me that
3: it's the it's a movement of a body, it's not bringing something there. Now again, that's a huge risk, because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're stopped or you're caught and you've got a you know two month decomposed right. body,
1: which is a lot harder to deal with um because of the body's literally breaking apart and falling apart and all that right um and, and you're leaving a trace behind you, you you know you can never get all of the body and all of the DNA you're leaving a trace behind in one place and moving it to another place um but it's not unheard of.
0: But in 88 or 89, that, that DNA question wasn't really on the radar like it would be today.
1: True. Yep, that's a good point.
0: Yep. Okay. Recently, on two back-to-back weekends, I headed to Huntington on my own. The place is so vast and overgrown, it seems like a fool's errand, especially almost 33 years later. But I was looking for something specific, a marker. I remember that Dorian's grandmother, Jane, once suggested that if he were actually guilty of burying his daughter in the park, Mark might have carved her name, or maybe her initials, into a tree. You know, if he buried her somewhere, I know that parents sometimes when they do that with their children, when they do away with their children, they might put them with a blanket because it's almost like saying goodbye or it makes them feel better about themselves. Um, That wouldn't
3: surprise me at all. You know what also I thought he would do? Here's, Here's another thing he did. He would carve her name on a tree. You think so? Yes, I almost can bet my life on that.
0: What makes you say that?
3: Because I know he definitely he liked to do stuff like that. Okay. You know he would, and, I, and if he buried her somewhere there, right now the tree is enormous. It'd be the 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 name would be way up in the sky, you know, because yeah. of that. how many years it went by? Thirty, thirty years, thirty years, right?
0: Yeah, thirty-one. I mean, that, that
3: tree is still alive. That tree is probably. Probably thirty feet high. Right. And her name would be right up there. He would write her name. He'd carve her name in a tree. Like it would be like her grave site.
0: I see what He'd you're saying. That. Yeah.
3: Does it make sense?
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean
3: does it make sense? Now that that's the type of guy he is. You know, and I and I have a feeling he would do that. But, you know, there's a lot of trees there. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And now they're 33 years Maybe the one, maybe it died. Who knows? You don't know if it lived or died. Um, so you look you be looking for a needle in a haystack, and might not even be
0: there. Recently, I spoke to a seasoned crime scene analyst who runs her own private cold case unit down south. She had just broken open a case where the killer left plastic flowers nailed to a tree where he'd buried his victim years earlier. I asked Tad Tobias about the marker theory. Okay, so here's another question. He, by all accounts, was obsessed with his daughter, constantly fixated on her. She looked a lot like he did, very tuned into what she wore, how she presented herself. I think a lot of people said she was like his token was one of the words they used. And so there is, I believe, from the work that the cops have done that I've done, there's a limited universe as to where she could be, and some people think that she's buried somewhere with, say, a carn or a cairn. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but or some sort of marking, some sort of laying to rest. And then there's other people that say to me, um, no, once she became an object, once she became a murdered body, she became something for him to get rid of. Um, and so I'm I'm torn between those two because she could be in either place you know, laid to rest was specifically with a memorial or just sort of tossed. Um, but I would think a, it would be harder to, I mean, it would be easier to locate her if she were just tossed because she'd eventually be found. And I don't know if, you know, a father who was so obsessed with his daughter to that point, to the extent of being say lovesick with her would have necessarily right. just tossed her away.
1: Yeah. It doesn't, Honestly, the theory that once she becomes a body, I don't, I, I don't, my obsession with her ends, does not strike me as very plausible. Okay. Um, you know, it's sort of similar to serial killers who get very into their victims They keep momentum, things like that. It's, an, it's the obsessive nature of people, and obsessive people don't tend to let go very easily. Mm-hmm. So, if there was you know, an inappropriate relationship and some sort of sexual obsession for lack of a better word with her. I suspect that would not end with her death. Um I noticed um in one of the things I think you'd written me there was something about maybe memorial stones, and I guess that's the carner I'm not sure how to pronounce it yeah. either. That that um would be to me more likely than not. Um
3: I would also suspect that he would revisit the scene. Yes. Um and I think
1: he does have some sort of obsession with her. In his own mind, he probably does love her mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a way we would consider um, particularly sick or twisted, but I think in his own mind, he does love her. It does not sound as if this is a child who is abused, who is mistreated.
0: of course, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know I wasn't asking about grave markers for the hell of it. Because recently, Mark's family called Tom Hanley up in Vermont to demand answers. And even though Tom Hanley hasn't spoken to me or to Donna's family, something got to him and he spilled a detail. Stones, he said. There were stones in the Huntington Forest spelling out the initials DV for Doreen Vincent. It was weird, Hanley told the family. It was weird, I thought. I wanted to see what Paul O'Connell had to say. Did you ever, and this is something that came to my attention after you and I spoke, and I'm sorry to keep you on the phone. There was something about they discovered little rocks or little stones spelling out the initials DV, which would be her initials. Did you ever hear anything about that?
4: I never heard anything about initials.
0: Okay. Or stones spelling out anything else?
4: Yeah, I won't go into detail, but, you know, you're, you're, uh, I would say you're hot. Okay. I never heard anything about uh, initials, though. Let's just leave it at that.
0: Okay. Okay.
4: Where did you get that information from? From a written report?
0: I got that information from, I believe, either Fliss or Hanley told somebody else that I'm in contact with. Yeah. That that there was something spelled out or there was some kind of arrangement of stones. Would that be in the forest?
4: I'm not going to go into detail, but... um, I don't know anything about any any uh, initials or any kind of writing.
0: Okay, okay. This sleight of hand was infuriating. Were there stones or were there not? I decided to call Lieutenant Michael Colavolte, the detective in charge of Dorian's case. For a moment, there was silence on the other end of the phone. Stones, he said? He'd never heard of that before. But Hanley had been the one to mention stones, I said. He was the one with his actual eyes on the ground in 1989. Cola Volpe was still stumped. There would have been photos, he told me. Polaroids. Okay, I said, confused. Maybe not stones. A marker? Paul O'Connell had hinted at a marker of some sort. Oh, that guy, Cola Volpe said? I don't know about that guy. I always wondered why he didn't follow Mark into the forest that night. So here we are again. As much as I push, this case never seems willing to provide easy answers. That's one of the reasons this season has been delayed so long, why it's taken me so long to research and write each episode. Because just when you think I'm on the verge of nailing something down, I fall down another rabbit hole. Curiouser and curiouser. I'll take you down a few of them with me. Next time on Sticky Beak.
3: Softly children, walk, softly children, walk, softly children, find your freedom little children.